Hey, Tamir. Hey, Allison. Oh my gosh, we're both on the other side of being pretty sick. <laughs> yup, it's officially our sniffles episode. <laughs> we're both a little congested. I've got a cough drop in my mouth. Like, yeah, but I'm so happy to be here. I'm long looking forward to recording this episode with you. For real. And I guess if we're showing up as whole people, maybe that means bringing some germs with us. I guess, yeah. <laughs> our full microbiome. <laughs> I want to do a check-in real quick. Like, how are you doing? You know, what's something you're bringing into our time today? Yeah, I think I'm doing really well. Um, I'm at this point, I don't know if folks know this. So I'm a, uh, outside of this, I'm a consultant and facilitator. And a lot of the work that I do is focused on how do people actually do this work together? And what does that, what does it mean to be together in this work? Um, and the other piece is sort of how do we inhabit ourselves as whole people in this work with all the different parts of us that come into that in the face of a system that seeks to tear us down and reduce us to our worst caricature, fears, basest selves, right? Um, and when I started doing this work as a white person and as a white man, I was terrified that when I told people what I wanted to focus on, they were going to be like, that's nonsense. You're just trash. I don't think anybody was ever going to say that to me, but the voices in my head were saying it to me. And now sure. I'm at a point where I'm saying things to people about well, this work that I've been developing with partners like you, Allison, over the last few years. And they're like, it's landing, it's resonating, there's interest. And that feels really good. And I want to say like the biggest thing about that, which is a fairly recent and kind of revolutionary development for me, is trusting in my own vastness, by which I mean my core self is like it just has so much inherent power and dignity and steadiness and ease that when I dare to allow myself to root in that, I don't need defenses. The voices quiet down, right? Mm -hmm. And it makes me actually a better practitioner. It's not like sloughing off and being reckless. It's something way better than that. And that has been revealing. And as I've said to you before, but I want to say it in public, um, this podcast has been such a gift for me on that journey. And so I'm really grateful to you as my my friend and colleague for for being on that journey with me. Oh, thank you, friend. I'm grateful to witness the ways in which you're growing and deepening. And yeah, it's amazing. And to be doing the same alongside you. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm like, yeah, I was sharing. I'm like on the other side of COVID, um, but still, you know, got some symptoms and low energy. And that's related to something I'm bringing into our time today is like really thinking about um, disability justice and thinking about COVID as a long-term disabling event for many, many people in the world um, and wondering how we are going to contend with that as time goes on, as you know, the impacts of long COVID, yeah, you know, it, we learn more about it and, you know, um, see those impacts. And yeah, so that's got me really thinking about like, yeah, what supports do we need in place? How do we need to change our systems to be um, actually taking care of folks who who need it most in terms of disability? So that's, that's on my mind and heart today. Yeah. And that's making me think of the ways in which like mainstream society gets very comfortable with 
people being disabled and like the adverse outcomes that they face in terms of interacting with systems that are designed to work for able-bodied, like sort of mainstream yes. presenting people and like anything else is kind of like not our collective responsibility. And COVID is like hearing you say that reminds me that COVID is bringing to the forefront that this was never acceptable. And there's the danger that we're going to do it with COVID or yeah. we're already doing it with COVID. We have we are already doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty, <laughs> I didn't intend it to be, but that's a pretty solid lead into our conversation today about harm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if you'd want to say anything about kind of how we've come to this topic. Sure. But on a personal level, I think harm is one of the things we struggle with the most as mm. white folks on so many levels, right? Like what kind of harm that has happened before we were even born are we responsible for? What does it mean for us to inhabit a white, a body that has been admitted into whiteness, right? Which I say as someone descended from Jewish immigrants and refugees. And like, what are our responsibilities in that? How are our behaviors contributing to harm that people continue to suffer? And what's our responsibility? And then just a very basic fear, right? Like, am I harmful? Have I been causing harm my whole life? Can I ever stop? Yeah. And like, there's a, a learned helplessness that I've experienced that starts to show up when I start thinking that way. Doesn't make me any better at the work. It doesn't make me, it, the only way it makes me less harmful is if I don't do anything, but then I'm not doing anything. And as we talked about in our last episode, that can cause harm, right? Like showing right. up too small. <laughs> right. So it's kind of a, a, a lose-lose on that front. Right. Um, so for me, that's that's sort of the motivation. How about for you? I mean, I think you just hit so many reasons why it's for me. Um, <clears throat> I see my clients who are white folks struggling with um, acknowledging the harm that they've caused, accepting that and uh, um, repairing it or attempting to repair when it's possible. And those are all things I've struggled with too, as we'll mm -hmm. talk about later in this episode, sharing examples of times where we have caused kind of racialized harm and it's a little messy. There aren't like super clear answers. <laughs> you and I have been working on this episode kind of outlined for a while and like really having to wrestle with like having, you know, incompletion. We don't have like complete perfect yeah. answers to a lot of these questions about harm. So we don't, but also we have a lot more answers than we think we do. And I think part of what's hard about <laughs> harm is actually the fear of causing harm or the fear mm -hmm. of being responsible for harm in the past and the guilt and shame that come with that. And then it's like, and that there are no answers that I'll always be harmful. I can't help it. Like, I don't think that we can afford to accept that as people who are invested in the work. So I'm really excited for us to start to surface some of that clarity. And like we yeah. always do, like try to move from fragility to rigor and clarity. Yes, 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 yes. Which leads us to like what we're hoping to do with this episode. And we are hoping to talk specifically about ways that white people cause harm, including how we have caused harm. We want to talk a little bit about harm versus hurt. Um, and we want to talk about how we're navigating harm kind of in our own work, kind of what strategies we're using as we're, you know, living and being um, to address, mitigate harm that we may cause. Tamir, talk to us about what, what do we mean by harm? Like, what's our working definition? Yeah, so uh, I'm going to offer a definition that I've been workshopping with Aravinda Ananda, and we're working on a project that talks about uh, de-escalating harm, particularly in white-dominant facilitated spaces, workshops, meetings, that kind of thing. And we define harm in that context as behaviors that reproduce dynamics of oppression and have material, psychological, 
or emotional consequences. So to unpack that for a second, dynamics of oppression, meaning folks who look like me, right, have disproportionate power over people's livelihoods, safety, well-being, and also over their ability to actually seek those things, right, and to be treated well in any given space. And there's different levels of that. Go ahead. I just would love for us to get like super clear on what we mean. So folks that look like you, white presenting, male Mm -hmm. presenting. Yes. And when you're talking about the other folks, you're talking about folks of color, Mm -hmm. perhaps women, folks with Mm -hmm. other marginalized social identities. Yeah. Thank you. I'm I'm glad to be specific about that. Um, So there's, there's different levels to this, right? So historically we know that this has looked like genocide, murder, um, removal from land, um, erasure of identity. Think about things like uh, boarding schools in the United States for indigenous people and a lot more. And some of those levels live on in our systems, right? Like land theft continues, whether we're talking about what I've heard called land loss in the, the American South or violation of native treaties, um, mass incarceration and policing, prison labor, healthcare discrimination, like these things are still happening. Um, and then there's the stuff that maybe we might feel more directly connected to as individuals in this work, in this society. Um, and there's the stuff that like, I'd like to think that none of us would ever do, like calling the cops on a black person for no good freaking reason, right? Mm-hmm. Which is one in which you can actually invoke the full brutality of the system on another human being. And mm-hmm. I hope that most folks you know, who are listening to this now understand why that's harmful. Um, mm-hmm. And if not, let us know and we'll talk about it. Um, yeah. And then there's stuff that is, it's still like you can't fully separate it from that brutality, but it's more not you could say it's more subtle. I'll talk about like microaggressions, right? Mm-hmm. And like the little things that people might do to each other at work, mm-hmm. where um it's still possible to invoke the brutality of the system, but you're not doing it on purpose, right? So like if I'm committing microaggressions at work, it creates this dynamic where a let's say a black woman who works with me has to take a risk in either calling me out or talking to my supervisor or doing something to interrupt that. Mm. And not only are they being hurt by the initial thing that I'm doing, but they are at risk of further harm from the system that will most likely protect me over them. Yep. Thanks for naming like the levels to this, right? So like the first few things you named are kind of systemic levels and sometimes institutional levels. And then the example you just gave is a great interpersonal example, right? That happens Mm -hmm. between ourselves and another person in a specific setting. And I I always encourage folks to look at things and be aware of what level of engagement they're happening at. Like is something happening at a systemic level versus an internal or interpersonal level. And like you said, they all matter, right? Like they all like we may be able to relate more fully to something that we have done to a coworker said versus a systemic issue but that doesn't make mm-hmm. one or the other more or less important. Right. And a thing that's important to name, but that I don't want us to be immobilized by is mm-hmm. that the microaggression that happens at work evokes the full power of that same system yes. that can murder people. Yes. Yes. So yes, they're, yes. Not, they're not wholly separate. That doesn't mean that we are murdering people when we make a mistake in the office, but we have to keep in mind that like that is at play. Mm-hmm. And so that, that is a thing that we can, that we have to learn how to hold responsibly. Yep. Yeah. Oof. I just got to take a breath for that. 
Yeah, it was a lot. <sighs> and I know one thing that we've talked about is that uh, harm is about power and like who gets to decide what harm is, who do mm -hmm. we protect from harm, whose harm do we disregard or accept as inevitable, like we were talking about with disability justice, mm -hmm. folks, you know, suffering disproportionately. Um, whose harm do we care about versus not? Who gets held accountable for causing harm? Who gets to seek accountability when they've been harmed? Like all of these questions are inherently about power. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So Tamir, we've talked about how this is a hard topic talking about harm as white folks who, yeah, cause harm to folks of color in addition to causing harm to other white folks. I'm curious, what is hard about this topic for you? Mm, so I think there's there's two things. So one is that harm operates on what well, is like what we were just saying, right? Like harm works on multiple levels at the same time, and so mm -hmm. it's important to have perspective about the kind of harm that we're causing. Like if I unintentionally invalidate my colleague, I haven't destroyed their career or caused irreparable damage necessarily. Um, and it's easy to spiral into that, but I also have to be aware that that's not the first time that my colleague has been invalidated like that. And that mm. all of those past experiences are relevant in that moment because the harm is happening again for them. And so separating out like what I'm responsible for and what my duty is around that can mm. be tricky and holding that awareness again, without letting it sort of crush me under its weight. Um, and the other piece is just a personal fear um, in what in our coaching work we call shadow, right? These parts of us that um, are trying to protect us, but really are are preventing us from living in our full selves. And mm -hmm. th that's the one that says, you're inherently harmful. There's nothing you can do about it. So you should just disappear. Mm -hmm. And again, like, that's not the self I want in the driver's seat. The wise self in me knows that that is, that's hypervigilance. It's not mm. wisdom. It's not protecting anybody. And so part of my growth as a practitioner is learning which voice to listen to and how to hold that. Mm. Mm. Yes. Oh, I so resonate with so much of that. <laughs> I resonate with kind of what I feel like for me, I often see, this is true. I feel like I see it as a binary of like, on one side, like being immobilized by fear of causing harm or, or knowledge that I have caused harm. And on the other side, like, I don't want white people who listen to this conversation to come away, I don't know, feeling like flippant about harm. Like it doesn't yeah. like, it doesn't matter. Like, oh, we're all going to cause harm. Doesn't actually, you know, matter. Like I want... I want there to be this like middle place, right? Where yeah. like folks who are listening and for myself to feel like I need to radically accept that I'm going to cause harm to folks of color. And I also need to like radically attend to any and all harm that I cause, mm -hmm. like not getting stuck on either, like one or the other end of that kind of binary. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's bringing, it's bringing up a couple of things for me. I think one is, I think that flippancy it actually comes as a response to the fear. It's like when you're like cramped in by that fear for so long, it's easy to just vent it out 
And it becomes like, well, I'm just going to cause harm. So I'm just going to do me, which is privilege, right? That's not, that's not an acceptable way of being, but it comes from being locked in this inner battle. Like nobody is doing this to us, right? Like I do it to myself. And so like, I think that's, that's really important, um, really important to name. And I think the other piece, um, is that like, yes, we have to radically accept that like no human being is going to move through the world without causing harm. And we can actually learn the ways in which we might cause harm. And it might not be a perfect cataloging or a perfect taxonomy, but we can learn enough that we can be different from the way that most people who look like us are now. Yeah. Yes. I'm so glad you named that, that like, yeah, we, we are capable uh, of learning and growing and recognizing patterns around where we cause harm and mitigating those, preventing those in advance. So thank you for (laughs) naming that piece. Mm. So you and I came up with a a million questions really about (laughs) harm to get to all of them in this podcast. Um, But the first one we generated was this question of who gets to decide what harm is and who gets to decide when harm has happened. That's such an important question. We have to be aware that for our entire history, white people and white power structures, and for, for much of the time, not even all white people, right? Like white owning class Protestant men got to determine Mm -hmm. and in many ways still do get to determine what is harmful. Our entire legal system, our penal code, our school discipline policies are all written around that idea. And many of those rules were put in place to enforce white supremacy. Like the idea that Mm -hmm. enslaved people learning to read was a crime was entirely about reinforcing mm. white supremacy and keeping people in a position of subjugation. And the sure. the more day-to-day versions of that, that most of us recognize that we experience live on today. But we're also living in a time when movements and leaders of color are challenging those white-centering definitions of harm, those definitions that uphold white supremacy, and offering their own. And they look different from what... A, Rightfully so. Rightfully so. Um, <laughs> And so that is, it's really important and we've got to be paying attention to it. And again, it can be disorienting, right? Because how do you avoid causing harm if you don't know what's harmful? Um, if you, if this new definition of harm is true, what does that say about me, right? Like, what does it mean about what I've been doing my whole life? Um, how does it mean for me as a human being? What do I do about it? Um, so I think it's important for us to hold that our understanding of what harm is and what our responsibility is about that is evolving. Yeah. And what you just said points to our understanding of harm being relational. Like it's it's an interpersonal understanding of harm. Like if I have caused harm to someone there might be someone else who shares that same, that person's same identity that doesn't feel like what I said or did was harmful. Right. So there's like, there's a context of the relationship that's so important, not just for understanding what harm has happened, but also what's possible around addressing it. Yeah. Harm can be both subjective, but also intersubjective. Right. So if you Mm -hmm. tell me that I harmed you and I'm like, I don't see it, where does that leave you? Well, whoever has more power gets to determine who's right, right? Um, and there's a flip side to this that is a lot to unpack. There's a piece now where somebody's like, well, you harmed me, and that has mm-hmm. consequences. 
And there's not always a good system or process in place to unpack that and work through it in a healthy way. And so yeah. harm can be both like an allegation and almost a sentence. Mm-hmm. And that can be tricky. Yeah. And exactly for the reason in my mind that you shared is like, if there's not a process to address harm that's caused, like it does become a sentence, right? Like, it's like, you've done this thing. There's like no space for us to like, I don't know, talk about the impact, talk about what needs to happen next, what sort of amends need to be made, what, you know, what needs to shift. If there's not a place, a container to do that, then it is Mm -hmm. just, it's a label really, (laughs) like you've caused harm. Yeah. I'm glad you said container because mm-hmm. I think that a lot of groups don't have the skill sets or the shared commitments to resolve those issues. And so like, it's bound to be unhealthy. Um, yeah. And that's a thing we can fix. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Oh. Let's get specific. Let's get granular. Yeah. Like what are some of the ways that white people cause harm? Why don't you speak to that one? I was just going to say, I'm happy to like hop into yeah. this one. Um, I mean, there are many ways, (laughs) again, this could be a long list, but I think some, some bigger buckets that, that we would offer is, uh, paternalism, just the idea of like, I know best and better than the people of color in this room, in this space that I'm in relationship with that can look like making decisions that impact people of color without getting their impact that can look like moving into leadership roles in situations where people of color are more impacted or better positioned to do whatever the task is at hand. Um, another kind of big bucket um, is like tokenism, like the ways the instances in which we as white people ask people of color to represent their entire racial group. Right. Or if we, re- or if we reduce them to the sum of their identities, like we only yes. like allow people to be in positions where their identities are seen as relevant or value added and like they don't get to have opinions that are like expansive or 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 roles that allow them to be like full powerful human beings. Yes, 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 yes. And then we've got this concept of microaggressions which was um kind of created and brought into popularity by a psychologist named Dr. Daryl Wing Sue um who create who has written a lot about microaggressions and done a lot of research about them. Um and those include things like big picture things, which actually to me feel more macro, like treating people of color as second-class citizens with regard to access to opportunities, spaces, resources, like that feels pretty macro, but Dr. Sue is included yeah. in questions. Can I, can I ask you about that? So what is yeah. it about, like in terms of specific behaviors, what are some of the behaviors that they talked about that then are, would be considered microaggressions? Hmm. That is a good question. I'm not sure. I have examples of that off the top of my head. I'm wondering, like, there was an example where in, I don't know, was that article or another one you sent me where there were two people of color on a plane and Mm -hmm. for like to, like they sat down and they were near the front of the plane and then some white people sat down in the next row in front of them, but they were asked then to move to seats in the back of the plane to help distribute the weight of the plane. Mm. And like later. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I think it was in that one. And now I'm yeah. pulling up the article so I can re- refer to it. That's when we as white people mistake people of color for like being a service worker, right? Yeah. Or, you know, when a taxi cab passes by a person of color and picks up a white passenger. So mm-hmm. like, 
yeah, that kind of framing of like second class citizen feels, I'm really glad you asked us to be specific because it feels <laughs> really big, but like these are very like everyday kind of yeah. quick interactions. Um, yeah. Yeah. That really, <laughs> yeah. Bring that into focus. Can I say two things about that? Yeah. So one is like, here's maybe where there's a difference between a macroaggression and a microaggression. So the macroaggression yeah. might've been like, you're not allowed to sit in the front of the plane. Sure. You need to sit in the back, right? That's yeah. just like straight up like Jim Crow, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that this idea that like, oh, they didn't even notice the white people coming in to sit afterwards. So it never occurred to them to ask them to sit there instead. And so the harm wasn't that they were asked to move, mm-hmm. but that they were asked to move instead of people who sat down after them for no mm-hmm. good reason. Um, and then the article goes on and we'll share the article on social, like the article goes on to talk about how the flight attendant responded when they were called to account for that decision, um, Mm -hmm. which went very poorly. Um, Mm -hmm. the other piece is like, I think we misunderstand microaggressions sometimes. And Aravinda talks about this, my colleague that like a microaggression doesn't mean the hurt is small. I mean, Mm -hmm. the action seat might seem small to a person who doesn't understand the impact, right. Or who is not subject to those things. So like. In that situation to that flight attendant, it seemed totally innocent to be like, well, we have to redistribute the weight. Those people sat down fairly late, like seems reasonable, but that's not at all how the people who were subject to that decision experienced it. Yes. I'm so glad you clarified that too. And I've started to think about microaggressions, the micro part being the fleetingness of an interaction. Mm. It's like not like a a long, you know, it's not a long-term interaction. It's not a law. It's not like you were saying Jim Crow. That's like, but it's a fleeting interpersonal interaction that has Mm -hmm. a bigger impact than maybe the length of the interaction took. Right. Right. Um, Yeah. Other microaggressions that um, Dr. Sue named were an assumption of criminality, like assuming a person of color is at fault because of their race and examples of that he gave um, were, you know, a white person or white person with a purse, like clutching their purse as a black or Latino person passes by a white person waiting to ride the next elevator. When a person of color, you know, looks like they're going to embark on the elevator. Um, so just really assuming that a person of color is going to be dangerous in some capacity or be at fault in some capacity simply because of their race. Yeah. There's, um, it's funny because there are levels to this too. Like any one of us can do these things. doesn't matter how many years you've been in anti-racism work. Like this is just deeply programmed. Like if you ever caught yourself locking your car and then be like, wait, why did I just do that? And then you see somebody passing by, you're like, oh, fuck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that wasn't right. Um, but the other thing is like, there's also ones like when we're in the work mm-hmm. that we do to people. So like, um, assuming that, again, you talked about like assuming that a person of color is going to be in a service position. So like, if you're like planning a workshop with a colleague of color and then like, without thinking about it, like you ask them or assign them like certain tasks, maybe Mm -hmm. you don't even have authority to assign them the tasks. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but those tasks, like they're not, they're not equal. There's like a, a, a assumed difference. So it's like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to lead this part and you're going to do the housekeeping or like, I'll talk to the CEO and you like send the email. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's even, I guess under this rubric, it would be a microaggression. Um, mm-hmm. But like, again, it reinforces that power structure that says that like you as the white person get to be the one, one who determines that and that you are the one who is more worthy or fitting to be in that like sexier place. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's making me think about in my working relationships with folks of color, I try, one of my strategies around that is to try to take on <laughs> the less sexy work, try to take mm-hmm. on like the admin work or yeah, the the stuff, yeah, that, that isn't as glamorous, like you said, um, so that I'm not unintentionally putting that on the folks of color that I work with. Mm-hmm. So kind of taking this down, like you said, to the level of like folks who, you know, despite our best intentions, like things we can still do even in our anti-racism work. One of the microaggressions that Dr. Sue listed was like pathologizing cultural values or communication styles, like that some ways of looking, acting, being, showing up in a space are good or normal or professional or acceptable while Mm -hmm. others aren't. Um, even if those quote unquote other ways of being don't have a negative impact on folks involved. Um, I feel like this is something that I can see in a lot of spaces that I have been in um, where, yeah, the white folks like (laughs) determine um, what is the right way to be in this space at the expense of folks of color or just other ways of being in a space. Yeah. I know you also had some thoughts on micro insults and micro invalidations, which also came up in this resource. Yeah, I really appreciate, I mean, first of all, I just appreciate their taxonomy overall. It was really helpful to me. And mm. um, they talked about micro insults and micro invalidations. So like, so like the micro insults piece is like, you know, making comments or gestures that are rooted in stereotypes or like power relationships between people. So like, making a comment about the work that somebody probably does or like not looking somebody in the eye when you're talking to them or shaking the white person's hand at the networking event, but not the black person standing next to that, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then there's micro invalidations, which are like, you know, that classic shit that people say about affirmative action when they meet somebody who is a, a person of color, who is in like a professional space or an academic space. And there's like this assumption that they're not actually qualified to be there. Um, and again, that's not always a microaggression, but like when it is expressed in like small gestures that imply that it could be considered a microaggression. Yes. Um, yes, so yes, yes. I think anything that helps me parse the different types of harm or microaggression that we, that we might do are really helpful because it gives me a framework in which to avoid it without having to be so scared of it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if now would be a good moment for us to talk about, you know, examples that we have caused racialized harm and like, how do we, kind of live with the harm that we've caused. Oh, that second question. Whew. I know. <laughs> oh, can you tell we've been looking forward to this part of the episode? Because <laughs> we haven't. I mean, I can start if you want me to kick us off. I'm good either way. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I thought of one specific example. So um, all of my work prior to working for myself has been in nonprofits and in like youth serving nonprofits and Um, yeah, there was, uh, one instance in which I was working with a black woman and my perception was she wasn't doing a necessary step of a task that needed to be done. And instead of going to her directly, I went to her boss, I went to her supervisor and kind of, I know, right. Tamir's cringing. Um, and I am cringing internally. It's partly Um, a sympathy cringe. (laughs) It's okay. For both of you. Yeah. That's fine. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, basically, you know, complained to her supervisor instead of talking Mm -hmm. with her directly. Um, and I remember at the time feeling really indignant and kind of self-righteous about like, 
this is for like the benefit of the youth that, you know, we're serving. And like, that was true to say, you know, there's a degree of truth to that. And it was also very true that the way in which I went about that was definitely, um, yeah, harmful. It was definitely harmful to her as a black woman. And even just thinking about like bigger picture, you know, all the work that I've done for nonprofits in general, like I ran all kinds of programs for youth and young adults. And like, were those programs informed by the people that they served? Like not always, you know, a lot of times they were very paternalistic. Right. And I think like adultism, it's like the intersection of like adultism and racism, right. Mm -hmm. Like adults, white adults decide what programming is for black and brown youth or youth of color. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think, yeah. yeah, that's like once I gave one specific example, but also just like even the bigger picture of the nonprofits that I've worked for. Um, I think, yeah, there was harm that was caused. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh. live with that. <laughs> Second question. I think I just go back to the like radical acceptance and radical attending, right? Like, I would not do that thing today, right? To my colleague, right. um, to a, a colleague of color. And I don't know that I would run program, you know, the kind of programs that I ran, mm-hmm. even though they, there were things that were beneficial about them, I would run them differently. I would get yeah. much more um, input from the youth of color I was serving. Yeah. Um, so I think there's like a, for me, I live with it with like, yeah, I'm disappointed that that's how I showed up and I've learned better and I now know better. And so I can do better. So yeah, it's that both and. And this brings up one of the hard things about repair too, which is like, I mean, there's a lot of hard stuff about repair, but one of the things is like, not all harm that we've done to people of color in the past is something that repair makes sense mm. around. And yeah. I don't, I don't have a good answer. I'm, this is something I'd like to figure out for myself. Just like, when do you even try to apologize to somebody for something that may happen, have happened years ago? Yeah. Um, so if any of our, if our listeners have magical insights to that, please share them. We would love to hear them, um, and share them back with our audience. And we're going to come back to that. But like, so there's a part of it that's like, oh, well I did it. And we don't want to be like, oh, I'm just going to live with it and move forward when repair is possible or appropriate. And there's a discernment piece there that I think we have to sharpen. Yeah. Um, and also like if we all went back and apologized to like every person we'd ever hurt, like I don't even have the information for those people. Like what would it be like to be on the other side of that? You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's a really important thing to think about is like, when are you causing um, more harm by even trying to engage mm-hmm. with repair? That's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Samir? What are kind of some examples of where you've caused harm and how you sit with it now? Oh, it would be hard for me to even write a, a top 10 list. I've caused a lot of harm and mm. some of it may have been relatively minor and some of it was not. Um, mm. There are times when I've caused harm that has affected somebody's career and their well-being. Um, mm. And there are times when, you know, it might've felt shitty and somebody like moved on with their day and just like added it to the list of ways they've been harmed in that same way. I'll give yeah. a specific example. So when I was at Living Cities, I thought I was an ally when I first started. One of the things that I did this was like just before like what I would call the real beginning of my allyship journey. So I had okay. a lot of colleagues of color, many of them were women of color, and folks would talk with each other in our open office about experiences of racism that I had had. And I would mm-hmm. ask questions. They were kind of like, well, you know, how do you know that it was this? Mm-hmm. Right? Now it's your turn to cringe. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, how do you know, like, what if it was, and it was like, 
I wanted, they came from a place of, I wanted to give people the benefit of the doubt, but it was really invalidating. And between that and some other things I was doing, it reached a point where my colleagues stopped talking to me. And one day I was in a meeting and I was like, you know, y'all, I'm, it's clear that I'm doing something wrong. I don't know yeah. what it is. And I would appreciate it if like somebody could point me in the right direction and I'll do the rest myself. And one of my mm-hmm. colleagues took me into a room and was like, you know, I'm glad that you reached out about this. And I have to tell you that like, you know, wherever it's coming from, it's landing in a way that feels really invalidating. And that was when I really started unpacking alongside like Living City started going through its own racial equity journey because my behaviors were not unique um, in the culture of the organization. And so I learned a lot from that process as well and then took that forward with me. As for how I live with it, in that case, I wouldn't say that most of the folks who I worked with at that time would consider me friends at this point. But I think they respect me and I think they appreciate the work that I've been doing since and the ways that I've taken the lessons I learned from those mistakes and apply them going forward. So we don't have to be in relationship now. And like, that's okay. Um, But I think, you know, I think they know that I care and I think they see that I've like taken an effort to turn that like those errors into something better and to help other people not make those same mistakes. Yeah. Mm, Thank you for sharing that. It can be really hard sometimes to live with the totality of the harm that I have contributed to or participated in or caused directly. Um, and yet it's necessary, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know how you experience that. I think I generally try to be forward facing, hopefully not at the expense of folks who I have harmed, but mm-hmm. kind of in where you were talking about of like taking what I've learned and growing and like being different in the future um because that's the thing i can control right like i can't control what i have done in the past and and like you said there are times where i you know you can repair and make amends and there are times where it doesn't make sense it was 20 years ago you never know how to get in contact with that person so i'm most in control of of how i show up moving forward yeah and i like to think that if i met those same people now that it would be Mm -hmm. very different Mm-hmm. That offers me a little bit yeah. of solace. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. How do we want to wrap up, Tamir, for this part? Do we want to talk about what we do with all this and then do our accountability check-ins and moving money? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Okay. So we're going to, <laughs> we're realizing this conversation is getting long. We're going to do a part two where we get to some some of the other questions we've referenced. But for now, what do we do with all of this? Like, what do we do with what we have talked about in terms of harm? Yeah. Do you want to start us off on this one? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is learning more about what harm looks like. So we've got an article you know, from Dr. Sue that we can post on socials. But a lot of folks, a lot of folks of color have written about what racialized harm looks like. So seeking out those resources, familiarizing yourself doing some reflection about like, how am I showing up? Am I showing up in some of these ways that are harmful? Like that's an excellent step one. Mm -hmm. And I'll just add that uh, Arvinda and I are getting ready to start publishing some of our work on de-escalating patterns of harm. And I think it'll be a really useful resource. Yay, I'm excited for that. Me too. I know that we can also, you know, by doing that learning, we can reduce the harm that we cause to folks of color. And the piece that I'm just kind of hammering at home is like radically accepting that we can and will cause harm in some way. I think there's, I think there's some relief in that um, instead of holding ourselves to a standard, mm-hmm. it's impossible. Yeah. And we didn't 
we didn't talk about this beforehand, but there's also a piece around discernment around what is harm that we can practice. So Adrian Marie Brown offers a super helpful uh, set of distinctions in We Will Not Cancel Us about mm. harm, disagreement, critique, and abuse. And I think there's one more. Um, mm. They're saying sometimes it's easy to say that everything is harm. Mm. And I have heard both white people and quite a few organizers of color talk about how our inability to distinguish harm from other inner experiences actually makes it harder to organize and harder to win. So like, that's a good question for us to ask ourselves and actually dig into. And if you haven't read, we will can't, we will not cancel us, get the book, like the essays online, but the book really goes deeper. And I think it's worth, I, I think it should be required reading for every practitioner, honestly. Mm. Yeah. We definitely got to talk about harm versus hurt in our part too. Yeah. What else can we do? So I want to, maybe this is a full circle piece, but I think there is a piece around trusting our own vastness. Like I have the inner resources to hold both like the good that I'm capable of and the harm that I've caused because I'm human mm. and we just do both of those things. Right. Mm. And I don't have to live in constant fear of hurting people in constant fear of being seen as hurtful or unsafe. Um. Mm. Yeah. And instead, if I, if I allow myself to release that fear, it opens up so much more space for connection and frankly, just like greater discernment that helps me mm -hmm. see ways in which, um, I mean, cause harm and to let go of a sort of hypervigilance. Vigilance is good. Hypervigilance is not good. Right. Yeah. That mm -hmm. like, I'm not necessarily watching and I, I still do this. I just did this earlier today. Like, I don't mm -hmm. want to be watching like when I'm talking to a woman of color, for example, I don't want to be watching every gesture they make to see if it might indicate that I've caused them some harm. Like that is, that that's getting in the way of connection. Presence. That takes you away yeah. from connection and presence and like yeah. whatever you're there to do. <laughs> and it's got to be noticeable and probably annoying. Like since we released our episodes on taking up space, a number of folks of color who I'm in relationship with are like, thank you for doing this because people being too small is also really annoying. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, um, we've got to, we've got to get out of these things that take us out of presence. And it also is a way of reducing people to like a racial typecast. Yes. And yes, just yes, like, yes. we should never be in the practice of, of racial typecast. Yes. Mm. Um, there's another piece of this for me that's around, and this is a big theme in a lot of my work, which is like when you're, and oh, so much of this is about relationships, right? Yeah. And like, whether you've been in a relationship with somebody for a long time, or you're just starting a relationship, there's always room to say, how do we want to be with each other? What makes you feel respected? Um what do you want to ask of me as a white person or a white man or a cisgender person or an able-bodied person, whatever labels you carry, right? Um, what do you want to ask of me? There's conflict. We know that right? conflict is a part of relationships. So how to upfront, yeah. I'm a big fan of talking about that upfront. How do yeah. you want to show up when things go awry? Yeah. What does accountability look like between us? And yes. again, like this is partly about power, right? This is about saying, I call this, uh, Nikki Jack Paul and I call this relational inequity. Like, the default power arrangement is that like the person with more social power gets to decide what constitutes harm and what recourse looks like. And by saying mm -hmm. up front, we're going to do something different. What does that look like? It gets us out of a position of, gets people out of a position of powerlessness, which lends itself to like reactivity and lashing out and compounds harm more importantly, and into a place of like, we've made a conscious decision to be different between us and to equalize those power dynamics as much as we can and to work through it when we're not sure how. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. So in a nutshell, we said, learn more about what harm looks like, 
accept that we can both reduce harm and that we will still cause harm, mm-hmm. trust in our own vastness and resourced and resourcefulness, talk about how we want to be with folks um, in advance of how we want to handle harm, hurt, and disagreement, and notice and name power and consider privilege mm-hmm. um, and identity as you're seeking to prevent and address harm. Yeah. And I think a thing that I want to encourage our listeners to do if you're trying this on is don't belabor it, mm-hmm. right? Because there is a way to do this that is performative and absolution seeking. Mm-hmm. Like allow yourself, challenge yourself maybe to bring some ease to that so it doesn't feel forced or like out of proportion to what the relationship is. So as we wrap up this part one of harm, let's talk about our commitments to taking action. Every time um, that Tamir and I meet, we commit to taking anti-racist action in some way, deepening our allyship, um, and we update each other on how that's going. So Tamir, how is that going? What did you commit to and how is it going? So it's been going well. My commitments have been squishy in the past. It had to do with like approaching relationships in a certain way that involved curiosity and and uh, unconditional positive regard. And that's specifically with respect to like organizations locally, especially orgs that are led by people of color. And mm-hmm. I feel like you know, that's something I continue to do. It feels settled. And so I want to shift and make my next action commitment much more concrete. And it has to do with moving money. And um, after a few kind of lean years, I'm in a position where I feel like I can give more, I can move more. And so I want to go deeper on what my giving looks like and how much of it is giving versus how much of it is like reparations or redistribution. Um, And I don't know exactly how I'm going to do that yet. Um, but that's something that I, I want to do. And, uh, my wife and I are also going to talk about what it looks like to invest in our community in ways that we're for like resources. We can't necessarily afford to just give away. Um, mm-hmm. what does it look like to, to put our money where our mouth is? Awesome. I love it. I love it. I love it. Mm. My commitment was around getting more deeply involved in uh, local organizing, and COVID has gotten in the way of that, but I have continued um, to show up to different calls that a specific organization has made, um, and I'm going to continue to do that once I'm all healed up. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So now's the part where we invite folks to move money. Um, and this time I want to make a plug for an organization that is close to my heart. Um, uh, have like they're, they're local. I have a relationship with them and full disclosure. I also have business in front of them. Um, but they're called, uh, multicultural bridge and bridge is a grassroots org. It's dedicated to advancing equity and justice by promoting cultural competence, positive psychology, and mutual understanding and acceptance in Berkshire County. Um, to the extent that a bunch of important equity work has happened in this county, it's because a large part of Bridge, and I want to give a special shout out to Gwendolyn Van Sant, um, who has been leading and organizing Bridge for the last 15 years and founded the organization. Um, and, uh, you know, they, since the start of the pandemic, Bridge has been doing a lot of uh, mutual aid work, and there have been families that have really been relying on them uh, during this time. And as those resources have started to dry up, the pandemic hasn't gone away. And the need for a lot of families haven't gone away. And I think we all know that COVID has disproportionate impacts uh, in communities of color. And so this is a great time uh, for folks to think about supporting work like this as governments and foundations start moving their money elsewhere or holding it back because they're concerned about uh, recession or appropriations. Mm, mm. Sounds like they're doing amazing work. 
Um, I'm excited for our listeners to support them. 